On today's Paddock Pass podcast, we give Juan Mir the present that any world champion would want. Another interview with Neil Morrison. Adam Wheeler will tell us why Juan Mir is a special world champion and we'll ask whether the 2020 season was an outlier for Mir and Suzuki or whether we can expect more of the same from them in the future. Hello and welcome to the final Paddock Pass podcast of 2020 where we sit down with the MotoGP world champion and also have a chat about his title winning season. Steve English, Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler on the show today. But first things first, Neil, did Santa make it to Northern Ireland? <laughs> Santa always makes it to Northern Ireland, Steve. You know Santa's born in Northern Ireland. He's a good Northern Irishman. So uh, yes, I was, I think, first on his uh, round the world tour. And uh, yeah, he left uh, a veritable uh, selection of gifts, I must say. I have to say, he could well be from Northern Ireland because I got a big bag of oranges from him this year. So that would make sense. Uh, Adam, did he make it all the way across to Barcelona? He did. And I think he uh, left some residue of uh, virus or, uh, you know, some something along the lines of a cold because it struck uh, the Wheeler household over the, uh, the Christmas period. So it wasn't particularly um, uh, easy breathing, I could say. But we've got the kings over here. So in Barcelona, we have a you know, double dose of the presents. So we've got to wait six more days uh, and then uh, and a load more. I have to say, Ad, I don't believe Santa's a super spreader. If there's anything I saw from the Christmas propaganda, it's actually that he's fine and there's nothing wrong there. So it must have just been a localized issue in Spain. But Neil, there was another man in Spain that was making the headlines through the course of this year, Juan Mir. And you've always been a massive fan of Mir. But how big of a surprise was it for you whenever he was able to win this championship? Uh, it was a big surprise when you look back to... Um to the start of the season and the predictions we were making and where you would have maybe placed Joanne at the start of 2020 um, at the end of the year. Um, but I think as the season gradually wore on, um, once we got past the first three races, which were not so good for Joanne, and when you started to see him um, consistently perform, you quickly realised, like, I think Joanne's not only got the most, you know, all-run all package, but he's also the most together kind of competitor. He just seems sort of uh, strong, bulletproof, and really calm. And uh, I think when we got to Mizano time, more or less everyone that was a close follower of MotoGP was saying, he's the man. So by the end, I don't think it was a surprise. Yeah, uh, Neil's just after mentioning his mindset there, Adam. And this was a very strange season because Juan Mir only led 11 laps and an awful lot of riders were in the top three for an awful lot longer than Mir through the course of races throughout this year. But his consistency is what won the championship. And this has been talked about a lot. But have you ever seen anything like it? No, but I think the overriding emotion for me is just one of goodwill. I think people were quite open to seeing a new person at the front, um, you know, after the years of... Uh, from Stoner to Marquez Lorenzo, um, you know, for the last decade, I think it was a case of, wow, is that Suzuki really going to go through and close the deal? Because they seem to be the perennial bridesmaids of the premier class for, for you know, decades, um, you know, since the early 80s when they were pretty much cleaning up on the old, um, the, the RG500. So, you know, I think the fact that, like Neil says, you know, Amir emerged into that role of being a potential champion. Um, and I think there was a wave of kind of like, whoa, will he actually do it? You know, will that blue bike actually make good and, and not be kind of like the almost package that it's been for, for you know, the better part of 10 years in MotoGP. And um, he saw it through. I think the big thing is he won in Valencia. And I think that, that victory just adds extra credibility to what he achieved. I'm going to ask you one follow-on question there, Ad, as well. Is this the beginning of something special for me or Suzuki? Or is this just an outlier? Can I just to go on a tangent for a second? Uh, last night I watched um, a documentary about Fernando Torres, the Spanish uh, footballer. Um, Neil's hero, and, by the way. Yes. Well, you know, he obviously reached um, huge status for Atletico de Madrid before moving to Liverpool. And that was kind of like a, a step up in his career. You know, he moved from a capable team to a very good one. And I do wonder if Joan Mir's next career steps, we can talk about this later after, you know, we've heard Neil's interview with him. But I think, um, you know, he's he's shown what he can do with a capable motorcycle. Um, but, you know, where does he go next? I, I do wonder if Joan Mir and Suzuki will be a, a lasting relationship because the guy has the mentality. He has the talent. Um, you know, that's that's where he's differed with a rider compared to, say, Fabio Quattararo or Maverick Mignales so far. So it's uh, I, I'd like I'll be curious to see what happens there. It seems to be he's he's like the Torres Atletico at the moment. Neil, before we listen to your interview with Mir, we've heard, seen the whole way through the season that he's got a great sense of perspective. And a lot of that comes from 
just how long it took for him to get to the Grand Prix paddock. Why did it take him so long to get those opportunities? Um, I think um, that Joan grew up in comfortable surroundings um, in Mallorca when he was a child. His dad ran a skate shop. Um, I think his mother has been working in fashion for some time. And he had a comfortable uh, upbringing, but I don't think it was the upbringing that could really afford to throw hundreds of thousands of euros at his fledgling career when he was 13 or 14 years old. And we know that uh, to secure a ride in the Junior Moto3 World Championship, the, the Spanish Championship, essentially. Um, I mean, some of those rides, you have to bring 100, 200,000 euros to the table. And if you're not from a country um, that uh, isn't that well represented in the World Championship, then it, it can be quite difficult to um, to get outside uh, sponsorship and backing. Um, and Mir being Spanish, I mean, obviously, Spain is ridiculously well re- represented at this level, um, but he didn't have any form of, of, of sponsorship or backing um, behind him when he was a kid. Um, so he had to do two years in the Red Bull Rookies Cup, um, and then I think he was slated to spend a year in the Junior World Championship in 2015. Um, and in the end, that deal fell through at the 11th hour. Um, and it was at this point where he had to call upon the services of uh, Paco Sanchez, who is a man who manages several riders um, in Grand Prix level um, at the moment and uh, also had some experience with Grand Prix riders back in 2015. And, uh, well, we had the good fortune to speak to Paco Sanchez at the end of this season. And, uh, well, let's allow him to pick up the story. I started working with him in 2015 because uh, he didn't have any project. He had a contract with a team that uh, for the Spanish Championship, the FIM uh, chief, Toto 3. But in February or, mo- or March, the team say that they have no money to participate in that championship and uh, he didn't have any project. So they come to my office to explain me the problem that uh, he didn't have anything, he should be at home. And I say, okay, I will do my maximum, but in February, March, it's a little bit late. I start talking with everybody in this paddock, Moto2, Moto3, in World Super Sport, with everybody, yes. some cops, anybody like it, uh, Joan, sure. anybody trust in him. So uh, I force uh, Leopard because the contract for the Spanish Army was with a Leopard Junior team. But uh, at the last moment, they stopped the project for the film ship. So uh, I enforced uh, Leopard to put some money like a penalty. But in return of that, we paint the, the bike with Leopard. And I found a really humble uh, team that is, was Team Machado with a one Yoda bike from 2012. Oh, yeah. So a really old bike. And uh, okay, they say with really few money, with that, that money that Leopard paid, we could do the championship. So I told to all the team managers to say, hey, you need to follow the young rider, blah, blah, blah. In, uh, during the practices, the, the bike was broken in FAP1 and FAP2. Yeah. We have only two to qualify in, in Le Mans for the championship. So. He was in the last row of 36 riders. I say, wow, mama. Everybody is focusing Joan, and Joan made a disaster. Not Joan, the team, because he didn't have, he made only one lap in a circuit that he never ride before, never. So I say, wow, a disaster. But on, on Saturday, during the race, he departed from the last row, but in five or six laps, I don't remember exactly, but only in few laps, he arrived to the leader. That's right, yeah, yeah. And he crashed. <laughs> uh, this year, we have reviewed the video of this race, and Joan uh, told me a secret that was so interesting, no? He told me, as I didn't know the circuit, I didn't have the opportunity to roll because the bike was broken in all the practices. The only solution for me was when I saw the rider in front of me breaking, I count one, two, three, and I break. <laughs> so with this uh, with this tactic, he overtook many, many riders 
in few laps, the problem was when he was alone in the front, he didn't, he didn't know what to do, no? And uh, he, he arrived to the chicane in the road line and he crashed. But all the people was impressed. No, some people was impressed. One of them was Christian Lumber, that he really believed in him. And Christian said, hey, I need to bring this, this uh, rider to the World Championship with our team, Leopard. Sure. He pushed to his team. And uh, finally, at the end of the season, we signed a contract with Leopard to participate in uh, Moto3 in World Championship. And uh, you know all the history from that moment. Fair year, he won a race in Austria, many podiums, and also Rookie of the Year. The following year, uh, he won 10 races, uh, the title. And from then, more or less, everybody realized that the rider had something special, no? That's great stuff, Neil, and uh, good to hear from Paco Sanchez as well, Juan Mir's manager. But at this stage, I think it's only right to hear from the man himself. And Neil, you sat down with Juan Mir only a couple of days ago. What you did this year was was quite incredible. The seventh youngest uh, champion in MotoGP. Uh, Suzuki's first world champion in 20 years. I mean, quite an achievement. Have you had time to reflect on this? And I imagine it must give you a lot of satisfaction. Yeah, I'm, I'm really satisfied about the, the work that we did uh, last, uh, well, this year. It was um, it, it was a, a, a really uh, different year, uh, and uh, and I was able to to have the, the opportunity and then uh, to to get the opportunity. This this was uh, the key. Yeah, absolutely. We saw, um, I think, the the riders in the press conference. Before the first race of the season at Jerez, um, they were asked for their top five predictions in the championship, and, and not one of them chose you. Um, did you think at the start of the season that you could be champion this year? No, no, I I didn't think that, but I think that uh, I I would be able to to fight for the top five, maybe top three, if uh, well if. If the situation and uh, you know what they was expecting was um, to start in the first races in the same position that we lived the, the the previous year the 19, and then to start to have an evolution, no, to to start to to fight for the top five, then to got some podium, and then at the end of the season, uh, let's see where we are, no. This is the normal. Second year with Suzuki, uh, when we saw all uh, all, all the riders uh, that uh, came here in Suzuki, the, the first year always was really difficult. And the second one, they start to get some podium. And actually, that riders were were really really fast, no. But I didn't expect to be champion, and I didn't expect to to get one podium and then uh, to stay on the podium every race. This is something that I didn't expect. Uh, nobody expects. I think that for uh, the next year, if they ask again, uh, in the top five, I will be <laughs> in the in the list for sure. <laughs> that's uh, that's a safe bet, yeah. Joanne, at leaving Brno after the third race, you were 14th in the championship, 48 points behind Fabio. What was your feeling after the third race of the season? I was not thinking about the championship. I, I was just thinking to get the great feeling, the good feeling, no? Because I, I I got a top five position in the second day of Jerez, but uh, with some people in front, uh, with uh, some some crash and uh, some problem with the engine, uh, it was not a clear fifth position. What like a seat seven more or less, and it was not a bad race because I wanted to finish, but. You know uh, the Yamaha in that um, the Yamaha guys uh, with two wins, two second places uh, was uh, like in another in another place, no. And uh, and uh, and race by race, uh, the the bike was getting better. We we my feeling with the bike was getting better, and uh, and they was recovering that the that distance in some way in some way, no. Um, in the second race, I said, okay, uh, don't think about the championship. Let's start to think about the feeling. And then is when the championship came, no? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we arrived at Valencia, I think you had scored six podiums from the previous eight races, um, but there was no win. And a lot of people were talking about, oh, maybe Joanne will win the championship without winning a race. And was this ever becoming a frustration for you or was the goal just always championship, championship? The goal was uh, to give the 100% in every race. It was not the championship. It was uh, to do a great season. Uh, I I was able to to do um, a lot of podiums in this season. And uh, what uh, some sometimes we, when when we finish the season, I speak with with we talk with the team and this, and they say what uh, what gave us the championship was the. Um, but in some races, the bike was not ready to get the championship, and you the, the to get the podium, and you got the podium. You, you know, this was the, the 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 key that I got the confidence with the bike. And in some races that you don't see that the Suzuki that is competitive, we've been on the podium even with with, with some problems. No, uh, that that was for sure the key because the other riders, when the bike is working really really well, they won. But then, in the difficult moments, that is when you see that the rider, uh, they, they were in, uh, not even in the top ten. So uh, th- this was the the main the key. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think it was at the European Grand Prix of Valencia. Um, someone asked you, "How do you maintain calm?" And you joked that it was a chamomile tea was the answer, but uh, but really though it did seem that you were able to be completely calm in in high pressure situations this year. And for someone with just um, well two years of experience in MotoGP, it was it was quite quite a surprise to see that. Uh, how how did you maintain this calm, Joanne? Is it natural? Is it natural? I don't know how I do it because um, I I don't use any psychologist uh, it's just uh, it's something natural that came for me I have a psychologist but this year I didn't use it and uh, and was just I, I was in a, in a good harmony with the team in a good uh, harmony with the bike and I was able to to be calm and to believe in myself and just uh, when when I saw that uh, that I had the opportunity, to 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 make a podium, I got the podium. If I see that I can win, I can win. But I don't. I I was not uh, worried to do something more because it's something that okay, uh, you lose twenty five points if you crash, no. Uh, so uh, I I had clear in my mind that okay, I have to take risks, but um, till here, here, uh, here is the limit, and we need to score points. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. We all know that 2020 was not an ordinary season. You had to fight riders on the track, but you also had to be incredibly careful away from the track because of the risk of COVID-19. We know that you were maybe one of the more cautious riders um, away from the track. Can you tell us some of the precautions that you took to make sure that you didn't have, um, uh, well, that you didn't catch the virus? Well, in the last races we had that... Fast tests that uh, we almost we 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 did the we we were doing that test to ourselves like uh, <laughs> easy to to know uh, if we were positive or not. Uh, well, the, the the most important the bubble that we create inside of the of my crew was that um, uh, well when when I was coming back from the races that actually. If the bubble was right there in the Dorna bubble was right, I was negative. So when I was coming home, I was just not. I I was. Uh, I don't stop to take dinner and nothing. Just go go home directly. Uh, my my girlfriend was uh, shop going shopping uh, the week before uh, on Friday or Thursday. Then on Friday uh, she did the, the PCR test, and then you had the results or. On Saturday or, or on, on Monday when when I arrived, so in that moment she was negative and I was negative. Uh, the shopping was was there at at, at home, and 
and I was just training here, no, around here we have we have a mountain. We we don't we don't have contact with nobody, uh, and this almost was impossible to 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 get a positive. Uh, and uh, always you you have the chance. Mainly, I, I was worried more uh, at uh, uh, on the races that you see that someone was positive and you don't understand because there are people that. Uh, Go to the to the to the hotel and then come back. You don't know if this guy can, you know. Uh, this is for me was was the most stressful thing. Then at home I was calm because it was everything right, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just one final question, Joanne. Um, obviously, Mark Marquez has had quite a difficult time recently with operation and recovery, um, but we all know his uh, potential. Do you look at twenty twenty one and think? When Mark comes back to racing, that he will be—he'll be the guy to beat. He'll be the, the main rival for you. For sure, for sure, uh, will be like like that. Um, it's true that uh, that uh, she's uh, crossing one difficult moment. Uh, I saw Mark um, last uh, last. Uh, well, three days ago or four days ago, that I I was uh, going to to Alban to do some motocross, and um, Alex was coming, and um, and Mark was was there to 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 see uh, his brother and uh, just going a bit uh, away from from home and to do something different, you know, and and he was there and I said, how are you? He just congratulated me and uh, and. And he's not crossing a great moment. Let's see. You know, uh, it's it's difficult for for him uh, this situation for everyone for everybody. Uh, the, the the operation three operation on the on, on the same same bone same same place is something that it's difficult to see the light in uh, <laughs> to see the light, and um, and it, it it's a difficult moment. I don't know that if we comes back. If he will be straight away super fast because one day off yeah, is a lot in, in this world. But I'm the talent that this guy has is something um, that uh, not a lot of riders in MotoGP have this this talent. And um, and for sure when when he comes back, he will be. I, I don't want to say more competitive because uh, the the 2019 he finished or first or second, and this is something that. Okay, uh, better is a bit is a little bit difficult, but uh, but for sure uh, he will be on the level. Yes, perfect. Okay, Joanne. Well, thank you very much for your time. I just want to say congratulations again for a great 2020, and uh, I hope you have a, a nice holiday. Thank you. I hope to see you in 2021 <laughs> around yeah. the paddock. And uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and uh, enjoy your time. Exactly, Joanne. Thanks very much. All right. See you later. Thank you. Yeah, that's great stuff from Joanne Mir. And Neil, when you sat down to interview Joanne, what was your overall feeling from him? What was his mindset like after winning the championship? Uh, my feeling was that this poor guy hasn't had a day off in about five months or six months because, uh, you know, before an interview, you ask, you ask the the guy or the girl, you know, how are they doing and, and what have they been up to? And uh, when I asked that to Joanne, I said, how are you getting on? He, he basically just rolled his eyes and said, it's been nonstop since Portugal. Um, so I think between training and media commitments and responsibilities, he's been at full throttle basically since Portimao. Um, but um, yeah, I think from that interview, you can hear um, just Joanne um, being reflective and um yeah, you don't get the impression that this achievement, which is a pretty stellar achievement, um, has changed him or will change him. I don't think it will affect him in the sense that he'll rest on his laurels and think that, okay, I've won the biggest prize in the sport. Um, that's it, job done. I, I get the impression, and I'm sure you guys are the same, that this is this is only the beginning. Do you reckon it's, do you reckon it's sunk in, though? I mean, uh, I mean, as he admits in the interview, he said, you know, he wasn't thinking of the championship, just giving, I mean, that cliched answer of giving a hundred percent each race. I mean, that's, that's the kind of the, the racer's philosophy, isn't it? But, um, you know, I, I do wonder if he kind of realizes he's done it. I mean, it might take things like, you know, for, from our perspective, looking at the front cover of motocourse or, you know, I mean, it, 
for example, if we take Mark Marquez, every time he's won a championship, there's been a big party in Cervera, his hometown. Uh, he's always popped up doing numerous promotional events. I mean, it seems to me like uh, Mir has been based in his home in Andorra, kind of locked away due to the, you know, the worsening situation of the pandemic. And has probably been connected to a screen when he's not training or trying to have some time off. So his his uh, kind of enjoyment or his, um, you know, his experience of being champion is kind of perhaps muted a little. Or do you reckon that's the, the situation, Neil? Yeah, yeah, I guess that's probably something you, you would have to say is, is the case. Although I do think there were some celebrations in Mallorca, but they were all quite muted by comparison to what they would have been in the normal situation. I think it was a limited amount of people could uh, could be there and lots of social distancing between people that had attended. Um, but I think there was a little bit of a bash in Pamidi Mallorca, but um, generally, uh, yeah, I guess it's, it's hard to go out and, and celebrate and get rip-roaring drunk whenever clubs are closed and bars close at 10pm, as is the case around most of Spain at the moment. I suppose, Neil, it was a bit different to what Jorge Lorenzo experienced and a bit different to what Jorge was alluding to whenever he interviewed Joan Mir as well in the aftermath. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but at Valencia when Joan secured the title, he uh, had a, a champion's press conference, which is the the routine, the ritual, basically, whenever someone wins the MotoGP championship or, or any Grand Prix championship. And uh, I think Dorna had lined up Jorge to uh, ask a few questions to Joanne. They also had tried to line up uh, Mark um, to ask Joanne a few questions, but Mark, I think rather sensibly said, no, um, it's Joanne's day, it's Joanne's achievement. Uh, the focus should be on him, not on me. So I don't want to be part of this, which was fair enough, but uh, Jorge, um, being Jorge, <laughs> didn't quite gauge the room. and <laughs> Just talked about himself quite a lot for uh, for what was supposed to be a question he was asking um but at the end of it he said oh yeah what are your plans for the what are your plans for the the title celebrations you know in Mallorca when I when I won the championship we did this and we did that and lots of people were there and it was crazy and it took Joanne to say to him Jorge there's a global pandemic on at the moment you know it's going to be quite <laughs> difficult to arrange kind of parties like that uh to which Jorge said oh yeah sorry I forgot about that yeah I didn't realize which gives you a fair perspective of uh, Jorge's worldview. I think Jorge would manage to get a party sorted. Obviously enough, he's got a few parties organised lately out in Dubai as well. And he's clearly a bit of a wanted man in a few circles. But Adam, just whenever you look at pre-season, whenever we were talking about Suzuki, and I'm going to play a clip in a couple of moments just from one of our pre-season shows just before the first round of the MotoGP season. And in that pre-season show, Neil actually talks about how it wouldn't be a surprise if Mir was a bit of a dark horse, that Suzuki could go to every round and finish inside the top six. You obviously weren't on the show at that stage, but what was your expectation for Mir coming into the season? My hopes for Mir were of a rider that could um, challenge Alex Rins. Um, you know, Rins uh, had a fantastic victory at Silverstone in 2019, uh, 19, um, you know, he'd shown his potential, but I really believed that the speed with which Mir had accelerated through the Grand Prix classes, um, you know, and had adapted to the Suzuki. I still remember in Qatar, uh, first race of last year, you know, talking to him and being incredibly impressed by, you know, how much he was taking everything in his stride. The demeanor of the guy was, you know, of a, of a rider that had been in the class six, seven years, not, not someone who was a rookie. Um, so I had hopes that he would be able to upset the apple cart a little bit. But, you know, like he kind of said in the interview, champion, no way. I mean, I don't think he would have the, the consistency, definitely possible, but not to be, you know, regularly top five to be able to bring that championship in. But as Joanne also fairly admits in his words, um, he was able to keep stable while others around him just rocked. And I mean, I think he said something about when, uh, one rider would win one week and then be outside the top 10 and another. And I think that was also another ingredient of his championship. Yeah, let's have a chance just to listen back to what we said about Joan Mir and Suzuki pre-season. What about Suzuki? Do they have anything to lose right now? Because they're pretty much going to be playing with house money, it looks like. They've got a very good bike, but they don't have the pressure of having Mark Marquez in your bike where you're expected to win races and championships, or Quattararo, the rider that everyone expects to make another step forward this year, or Vinales with Yamaha. Suzuki's really in a great position right now. They seem to be able to use the softer tyre as well. 
and they really seem like they're very well placed for either this weekend or for the full season. Yeah, yeah. Um, you look at everywhere that we've gone uh, during preseason, um, all sorts of uh, conditions and temperatures, and, and Suzuki has two riders that uh, can definitely be capable of finishing inside the top six, possibly uh, every weekend, I would say. I think Alex Rins showed last year that he's um, he's probably, you know, now is the time that he should be stepping up to to fight for the championship uh, on a kind of sustained level across the season. And Joanne Mir, I think, is going to be uh, one of the big surprises of the year. Maybe you couldn't even call him a surprise because um, I think a lot of people are expecting big things from him. Um but yeah, the, the situation's looking rosy for them because there's no rush, essentially. They've got two of the fastest and most exciting young riders on the grid signed up, not just for the rest of this year, but for 2021 and 2022. And I think having that sort of long-term stability means that these guys aren't in a situation where they think, we have to make this work. Um, I think you saw that sometimes with Alex Rins last year, whenever he was talking about crashing out of races or having a bad weekend it didn't really seem to bother him because I think he knows that this is uh, just at the beginning and um, you know you have to say Suzuki with the current rider lineup are only going to get stronger um, and well they were third at Jerez in 2018 with Ian Oni. they were second here last year with Rins might be a long shot to call them for winning the race this weekend but I think uh, they'll definitely be in with a shot at the podium both riders yeah, I mean, I definitely wouldn't bet against them uh, uh, winning. It, it, it's very, very possible. It's very, very possible that a Suzuki could win. Okay, Neil, this is a rare opportunity for you not to have to uh, have egg on your face. You were pretty much spot on about what we could expect from Joao Mir. But when you look back at how the seasons progressed, obviously, there's been a lot of times whenever we've talked about Mir's mindset being what set him apart whether that was about trying to keep perspective during the pandemic, whether it was about trying to be consistent and just get himself on the podium on the regular basis. But it really was just that mental fortitude that set him apart because other than the first race of the year in Hareth when he crashed out, it's hard to really think of too many mistakes from. Uh, yes, you're right. Um, yeah, I think there were a few mistakes in, in qualifying. Um, usually he was pretty pretty bulletproof on a Sunday, um, but there were certainly a few occasions on a Saturday where you were a little frustrated watching, thinking you've got fantastic pace. And I seem to remember the second weekend we were in Aragon. Uh, he made a real dog's dinner of, uh, of qualifying that afternoon on, on the Saturday. And uh, he had been one of the fastest guys all weekend. And he just thought, how are you going to make an impression from the fourth row? Um, but but you're right. He, he got to the stage where you know, by the September, October part of the season, he got to the stage where, you know, third, fourth places, they would do because the uh, the sort of the swings and roundabouts of, of Maverick Vinales, Quartararo, um, were so pronounced that their bad days were, were really awful days. And uh, Andrea Davizioso was never showing race winning potential um, at that point of the season. And, and Mir, I think that really helped him because he knew that he didn't have to go all in and uh, and win races, but you know, just to rack up as many podiums as he did was still was still quite impressive. And when the big pressure was on, um, when we got to Valencia, for example, he didn't really put a foot wrong. He, he was calm and, and pretty composed uh, throughout that. So um, yeah, that was I think as as impressive as anything he did this season. Do you reckon maybe the low point? you know for me anyway I don't know what you guys think but was maybe the last race I mean Suzuki had that technical problem um you know and we're not able to you know really show any kind of potential at Portimao um you know one of the most spectacular tracks that came into MotoGP but you know I think you could feel uh, Mia's frustration I think after certainly after the after the Saturday qualification yeah it was a it was a pretty lousy weekend um, you know Suzuki had the chance to to ramp up the uh, the triple crown there the constructors championship the team championship and the uh, obviously the riders championship was already sealed by that stage um, and they had a chance to basically have a, a perfect season and in the end they missed out in the constructors championship but I don't think that would be too much of a worry I mean it was 20 years since Kenny Roberts Jr's um, uh last triumph for Suzuki in the uh, the Premier Class. Um, and uh, I think with Mir, I don't 
get the impression there was um, a drop in, in concentration or a drop in focus. Um, I think someone might have suggested that in one of his debriefs after the race and he, he snapped, uh, well, didn't snap, but he, he basically uh, gave a fairly curt response which indicated that uh, he, he wasn't of that impression whatsoever. Um, and uh, it was one of those times where he just gave himself way too much to do and, uh, and um, you know, the, the sort of aggression on the early laps, he, he got uh, penalised for that. Um, but I still think he had the pace to be top four, top five in that race. If uh, if it wasn't for, I think he had two contacts in the first couple of laps. Yeah, and I was going to say that for me, one of the big things was probably Bruno. I'd say that was probably the low point for Suzuki as a whole because after the Bruno race, we'd already seen two retirements for Mir. He was, I don't know, 45, 50 points behind Fabio Quattararo. He wouldn't have given him any real hope of being able to overcome that. Even for Alex Rins, he was probably 30 points down at that stage as well. So it at that point, you would have certainly thought Suzuki's on a hiding to nothing this year. And then within two, three rounds, it had all turned around for them. And suddenly, as Neil said, by the time we were getting ready to go to Mizano, even though Mir wasn't leading the championship, he was already being viewed by a lot of people in the paddock as being that title favourite. And then by the time we got to Portimao, it's a tough weekend for Suzuki all in. Bit of a surprise, but also one of those ones where... It didn't really matter. They could, you could excuse them a little bit for taking the eye off the ball, even though, as Neil said, they were up for that triple crown. But it was one of those ones where I think they'd already achieved so much that having a blip like that at the end of the season is a little bit more excusable. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about as well, Adam, because Suzuki's mindset was very similar to Mir's mindset. We saw that team celebrate podiums like there were race wins. We saw them really maximising everything that they could. And a bit like what Neil said about how Mir judged a lot of his good weekends by what the Suzuki engineers told him, we saw a real close-knit team that were there to dig each other out of problems. Yeah, it's that's that's why Portimao stands out for me, because I think it was the way that Mir was speaking in his debriefs, the frustration was tangible. Uh, on the Saturday was the first appearance of this technical problem and then his race day being ruined. Um, you know, it felt like... You know, for the first time, Suzuki were encountering a couple of difficulties that they hadn't had through the season. If you compare it with a manufacturer like Aprilio, their, their difficulties both with you know, machinery and riders have been well documented. Um, you know, they were kind of, that was perhaps them. I see what you're saying about Bruno, Steve, but then, you know, Suzuki was still the plucky kind of underdogs, you know, the smallest kind of factory on the grid, you could say, with their entry, just two machines alongside Aprilia. You know, you kind of think, well, you know, you you're not where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be punching a bit higher than that, but no way you're supposed to be a champion. And then Mia by Portugal is getting. It looks a little bit kind of frustrated, really, as if to say, you know, what we've achieved this year is fantastic, but yeah, you know, I'd, I'd much rather have finished the year off, you know, as number one. Well, I think for me, it's probably more a case of by the time we get to next season, when we line up on the grid for Qatar, is anyone going to remember Portimao? And I don't think they will. I think they'll remember what we saw through the course of the full season. And that's where I think the legacy of this season is going to be quite interesting. And that's where I want to ask you one question, Ad. I want to ask you, where does Mir's title rank? Because we always hear it about, you know, worthy champions and they did the best job they could, this, that and the other. Mir's one of the youngest world champions of all time. But he's also, I think, the only world champion that won the title by only winning one race. He grinded it out with consistency, a bit like Kenny Roberts ended up doing in 2000 as well. But it was all about just week to week getting the most from himself and the package. Was it a sensational championship or was it last man standing? It was a sensational championship, but an unconventional one. Um, You know, I think if you compare Joanne and put his name against all the champions over the last 10 to 15 years, those champions have won with a degree of excellence uh, the well-worn cliche of them being aliens, whatever else, uh, you know, I think you, you, if you contrast and compare, then it's a very, very different scenario. I don't think you can put that just down to it being a COVID-19 championship and squeezing 14 races into the period of uh, 18, 19 weeks. Um, you know, I think he he forged that championship on the back of things we've talked about before, like especially in the Suzuki podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, that's why like him or loathe him, you know, HRC's Alberto Puch, the moment he kind of made a comment about Marquez being missing in 2020 and that affecting the championship, he he really stamped it. He stamped this championship in a way that it's always, to say it's going to have an asterisk is, is completely unfair, but it might have a little parenthesis or, or some brackets somewhere as if to say, 
you know, this one was a little bit more unusual. But the best thing about Mir is it's not like he was a, a 32 year old last chance kind of like, you know, off the cuff, uh, fluky thing. I mean, he's got a number of years to back this up and get some more. I just hope his uh, his motivation and, and, you know, his pairing, his energy with Suzuki can, can reach uh, some more heights. I mean, it'd be great if he can win multiple races. Yeah, I always find it quite interesting when people talked about the shorter season and this, that and the other about Mir. It's easy to forget that, you know, 20 years ago, there were only 14 rounds in the championship. You know, it wasn't a case of the 19, 20 rounds that we've gotten used to in, in most world championships now. It was a case of 12, 13, 14 rounds. So Mir and these 14 rounds, they do actually give a good statistical comparison for an awful lot of world champions over the years. And Neil, that's kind of one thing that I wanted to ask you about is where you also see his title stack up. Yeah, I think on the face of it, Steve, um, you look at the record books, record books and, um, you know, even having watched the season closely as we all have, we can say that it wasn't the most emphatic uh, championship victory ever. Um, far from it. Um, it would probably be towards the, the lower end of the scale in terms of like amazing triumphs. But I think if the, in the, the context of Mir's career, um, it's his second season in MotoGP. Um, it's his fifth season in the World Championship. That's one less than Marquez when he won his first MotoGP championship. That's one less than Rossi when he won his first 500 championship. You know, it's uh, he's still relatively inexperienced um, for what he has accomplished so far. And, uh, you know, two world championships in Moto3 and MotoGP, it's quite impressive stuff in those five years. Um, and then you just add in this year being so random and how different it is to most years. You've got the schedule being so intense. You've got the back-to-back races at the same track, something we'd never, ever seen before. Uh, you've got... Um, the reference of the championship departing from the series after one race. Uh, you've got Midland's new rear tyre, which seemed to throw a lot of riders and a lot of factories off track. Um, and it was it was just one of those years where Mir's approach, you know, he didn't need to be going out to be winning uh, five or six races to win the championship. That approach, he knew, I think, by mid-season, that his approach of seconds, thirds, fifths, seconds was going to be enough. Um, and uh, in that context, I think it's a remarkable achievement. Um, and also, you know, you add into the fact that he's the seventh youngest champion ever. He's only the sixth rider to win the championship with Suzuki. Uh, yeah, it does. That stands up with uh, with some of the, maybe not the, the most brilliant, emphatic championships we've ever seen, but uh, certainly a remarkable achievement. Yeah, I thought it was amazing that when you think about it, Adam, this was a guy that hadn't won a Grand Prix for three years. And by the time he did win in Valencia, it was all about the coronation and it was a guy that was able to take a very much a big picture look at a situation that's very easy to feel that pressure, feel that you have to win races. Also, Steve, I think he he set a standard um, in the same way that a rider like Lorenzo or Marquez set a standard maybe for victories or for style or for pace or for relentlessness. Um, Juan set a standard for people like Quateraro, Fubinales, uh, maybe Miguel Oliveira, uh, for those around him to think, you know, okay, I know as, as a competitor, I, I need consistency to make a championship happen. But, you know, Mir actually showed it was possible for those duration of weeks and those particular circuits. Um, you know, that experience is going to be key for in 2021. But he did set the standard. I mean, you know, if I was Fabio Quateraro, I'd look back on 2020 and think, you know, what, how, what on earth happened there? Um, you know, Amir actually managed to deliver. So in, in that respect, like Neil says, it's, uh, it's a special championship. Maverick's obviously an interesting rider to talk about whenever you talk about Suzuki because he came through into the MotoGP class from Suzuki, left them to go to Yamaha to try and win a MotoGP championship. And then obviously we've seen just a downward spiral at times from Maverick over the course of the last few years. But how would he be feeling now at this time as well? Because this, for him, he must be feeling this was his opportunity to try and win a championship. You've got Marquez out and suddenly his old team, the team that he left, gets out there and gets the championship done. I think maybe I can speak for Neil as well here by saying the last couple of years, we've been surprised when Vinales has pre-season signed a new Yamaha deal, uh, been full of enthusiasm, hope, whatever else. And then by the end of the season or the campaign, um, probably feeling somewhat different. Um, he's a rider, I think, for four, even five years now, we've expected to be a regular challenger for the championship, but it just hasn't happened. Uh, whether that's something to do with his mental fortitude, his capability to meld a motorcycle and a, and a team together. I've uh, been through two 
crew chiefs, at least now, uh, Yamaha, not been able to consistently make the grade to, to, to fight for that title, then it's, um, it's a big old question mark. But in answer to your question, Steve, how's he feeling? I think 2020 is one way he's going to have to look at the garage as much as himself and think, you know, well, what a mess that was. I don't know what you think now, but pretty much think exactly what what you just said there Adam yeah um it was uh it'll be it'll be tough because I don't think Maverick has ever looked as uh, as stable and as dangerous as he was in 2016 his second year with Suzuki I think that remains his his best year ever his most impressive year ever when he won a race he was uh, regularly on the front row um and uh when he was he was up there in the championship on a bike that was clearly that year um well done in power and acceleration um compared to his competitors um, so yes, it, he'll certainly be looking at, at Suzuki and thinking what could have been because, uh, he could have been Suzuki's Juan Mir, you know, they, they had did everything in their power to try and keep him. Um, but in the end, you have to say the lure of, uh, moving across the Yamaha and being Rossi's teammate was, uh, was too much, but as it's, as it's panned out, I mean, it's, it's not been, it's not been good four years of, uh, of the same feelings and, um. I think that maybe shows in some instances where Suzuki um, has um, basically has gained where Yamaha has failed. Okay, one last question for both of you before we wrap up the show and indeed the 2020 season. But uh, Adam, I want to ask you and Neil both one question. Will Juan Mir have more success with the number one played on a Suzuki than Kenny Roberts had in 2001? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be hard to be fair. From memory, I think uh, Kenny Roberts 2001 was a, a pretty dispiriting title defence. He was uh, nowhere, basically, from the first race. Um, so yes, I, I, at the very least, I see Mir winning a handful of races and, and being a championship contender next year. Uh, I don't see how that can't happen. Obviously, there's a freeze on development, so we're not going to see any factories um, massively improve or massively fall away, I think, in 2021. Um, he's got a year of experience under his belt. He's the number one. Mentally, that, I think, will you know will be a big thing for him. And, uh, yeah, I, I expect him and Suzuki to, to kick on from here. Maybe not win the championship next year, but certainly be one of the names that's winning races. Yeah, I agree. I think... Um Above everything else, it's Mir's kind of mental, his character is one of his big, big strengths. Um, you know, there's few riders on the grid that I think will be able to deal with that kind of extra glare or attention, if you like, of being the champion. Um, just from my experiences of interviewing him and, and you know, hearing stories about him. So um, for the mid to long term future of Suzuki, uh, as, you know, Neil and I spoke about on the, on the podcast previously, I think, you know, getting two more bikes uh, on the grid in some form or, or shape, you know, could very much be key in the Mia-Suzuki partnership for the long term. Whether he re-signs another contract, that could be another two or a Marquez-style multi-year deal. Um, you know, if you're Suzuki, you'll want to be, you know, looking to keep a talent like that um, as much for his ability as his uh, his uh, proficiency in keeping the whole package together. Um, but for 2021, Steve, I think, um, you know, like Neil said, things are going to, the status quo is going to be pretty much set. Uh, it depends what happens with that big 93 HRC machine, um, you know, whether we back on track and what kind of state it will be in. But uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think we've got a, a champion here who you'd think, right, okay, he's going to give it a really good shot in 2021, 20, you know. I mean, if you were saying Fabio Quattararo is the reigning champion next year, I'd be thinking, you know, what's going to happen one weekend? It could be disaster to, you know, to glory. But uh, I think with Mia, that kind of strain of consistency he's had is, is going to be uh, standing in good stead. Yeah, definitely. For me, I can't imagine how he'll have a season where he only has one podium and he has to wait nearly until the very end of the year for it to happen. But it's been such a strange run through the course of the 2020 season that I think uh, already, as our attention starts to shift to 2021, it's uh, definitely going to be something to keep an eye on, something that's going to interest us all the way through. Because obviously, Neil, we're closing in on the start of 2021 and uh, obviously for the teams, for the riders, this is when they start to build up their preparation for getting ready for testing as well. Yep, exactly. Hard to believe that we've uh, we've made it to the end of the year, lads. Um, but uh, yeah, as you said, Steve, uh, attentions. I think attentions probably. Um, uh, Mark Marquez used to always say that uh, he would give himself a few days off over Christmas and New Year, and then from the first of January, it was right. 
it starts again. Um, we're basically starting from zero once more. So um, what we're recording here on the 29th of uh, December. So a few more days of, uh, of relaxing and then, you know, from New Year's Day, I think uh, all eyes will be set on, well, it's supposed to be on Sepang, um, the first test of the year. Um, however, um, a lot of doubts as to whether that will actually happen. Um, rumours that there might be a, a pre-season test at Hareth prior to the first race of the season. But um, I still think, you know, with the world... Uh, the way it is at the moment, I mean, um, numbers and infection cases are rising rapidly all over Europe. So who knows when we'll, we'll start again. But um, yeah, I think for riders and teams, everything will be focusing on that first test, basically from the 1st of January. Yeah, I think I've got three weeks before Superbike testing starts. So hopefully <laughs> that uh, issue down in Spain is long gone that affected the Wheeler household. But I just wanted to say a big thank you to both of you for joining us on the show throughout the year. Neil, it's been a lot of fun getting your insight through the course of the season. Adam, we had a lot of positive feedback for your involvement on the Roundup shows over the last few weeks. And we're obviously really excited to have you on board for next season as well. Pleasure, Steve. Don't forget, there's one other title that Suzuki need to hang on to next year, and that's the best looking bike. So, you know, the, the designer, you know, whether it's in Italy or in Japan, they still need to, uh, you know, rise to that. I don't know, is Mia actually going to wear the number one plate? Has that been mentioned anywhere on social media? I haven't seen any, any recognition. He said mostly that he wants to run the 36, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what Suzuki end up deciding on that one. But uh, what's what's always interesting about Suzuki Ad is it hasn't mattered what livery they've put on that bike since 2015. It's always been the best looking bike on the grid. And I remember at Saxon Ring in 15, they had like the GSXR, uh, I think it was a 30th anniversary special, and it was absolutely class looking. And they've just always been able to turn out a good looking bike. And uh, definitely, I wouldn't wouldn't have much of a surprise if they did the same next year. Oh, sorry, I don't sorry Steve. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. The, the Rizla Suzuki dull blue just didn't do anything for me. I'm sorry. That didn't work. But, uh, you know, hey, I think that's going back. That's going back to a totally different era of Suzuki. Ad. I'm on about just since they came back in 15. Fair play. And I think, you know, Mia, when was the last time we saw a number one in MotoGP? Uh, Casey Stoner, 2011? 12. 2012, yeah. So it's nearly 10 years. It's about time. Yeah, I always, I always think that the champion should wear the one place. It's always one of those things that looks great whenever you see it in different championships. I always like that Johnny Ray wears it in Superbikes. It really does just lend itself a little bit more authority to it. And uh, like I said, Ad, you've lended plenty of authority to the podcast over the last couple of weeks so a big thank you for joining us on this show Cheers, again today and neil a big thanks for joining us once again yeah thanks steve as well and i would like to extend the uh, the thanks to you as well you and uh, you and gordo have done a fantastic job uh, covering superbike throughout the year and keeping us all well informed from that paddock as well as your your MotoGP gp duties on the show so uh thanks as well to yourself yeah, we won't give David Emmett any thanks. He's <laughs> taken a month off. So, Dave, you're on your own, mate. Um, but a big thank you to everyone for listening to the podcast through the course of the year. A big thank you to everyone for supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash podcast, where for as little as $3 a month, you can support the podcast. It really does make a big difference for us to be able to keep the show rolling. And uh, like I said, a big thank you for everyone for listening to the show and giving us feedback through the year, dropping us questions at paddockpasspod or at any of our individual Twitter accounts. So until the 2021 kicks in, we'll take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast until next week. Happy New Year.